to PCOM Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Feldstein, and today we're speaking with Dr. Bruce Feinberg, Chief Medical Officer of Cardinal Health Specialty Solutions and a 1982 graduate of PCOM's Osteopathic Medicine Program. With more than 30 years of experience as an oncology physician, Dr. Feinberg now consults with payers, providers, pharma, patients, and policymakers. However, prior to joining Cardinal Health, Dr. Feinberg was the founder and CEO of Georgia Cancer Specialists, one of the first and largest integrated oncology specialty practices in the nation. While there, he pioneered health information technology, the Pathways Movement, and the Oncology Medical Home. In 2015, Dr. Feinberg was honored as a Pharma Voice 100 Most Inspirational Life Science Leader. He regularly contributes to healthcare literature on a broad range of topics, including value-based care, real-world evidence, clinical pathways, and artificial intelligence. He has made numerous presentations and published peer-reviewed manuscripts in Cancer, the American Journal of Managed Care, the Journal of Clinical Oncology, JAMA Oncology, and many more. Dr. Feinberg maintains his license as a board-certified medical oncologist in Georgia, where he practiced for 23 years after completing a fellowship at MD Anderson Cancer Center. A highly sought after researcher and speaker on healthcare policy, value-based care and cancer, Dr. Feinberg is the author of the best-selling Breast Cancer Answers and its follow-up book, Colon Cancer Answers. He hosts the weekly checkup on WSB Radio in Atlanta, where he provides the community with the latest health information. Welcome, Dr. Feinberg. And going forward, I'm going to refer to you as Bruce. So we've got a couple of questions for you. From your vantage point as the Chief Medical Officer of Cardinal Health Systems, what have the past two years been like, and how have you advised your clients and your radio audience to respond to the current pandemic? So I would say, you know, on a personal level, it's terrible, but the past two years have not been so bad for me personally. So one of the, th the nature of my jobs, which is so different from medical practice, is there's a lot of travel. I go to a lot of conferences, I do a lot of speaking, I do a lot of research presentations, and often that research may be sponsored, and so I'm also visiting clients. And it's very unusual when you're in clinical practice to travel. You may go maybe once a month to some kind of an event, and that would be a lot for most people. And when I made the change in my career, I'm now like traveling every week, sometimes more than one night of the week being away. Then I have my radio show, and my radio show was a, a radio show live in the studio. So between the travel during the week and the conferences on weekends, and then my radio show, my wife was not all that happy about my career choice and change. And then the pandemic hits and suddenly I don't have to travel for work. And suddenly my radio show is remote. And so again, on a very selfish and personal level, being kind of a hermit-like antisocial person that I am, it wasn't so bad having to be home all the time and not having to do all that travel. Now, more seriously, it's obviously been a huge, huge impact on every aspect of life that we have. And at, at a corporate level, you start to think about all the layering that happens and the layering of both in an industry like Cardinals, where you have to get drug out the door to hospitals every day. Um, what happens when you can't pick, pack and ship that drug because your workforce is decimated by illness? 
that workforce that can work has to be on that front line. There's no other way to do it. You can't Zoom filling of packages to be sent out to hospitals with vital medication. And I got to tell you that it was interesting because when I joined Cardinal, and I don't know much about distribution coming from you know, the medical world, I think about it like a beer distributor. And I actually said that to the CEO and I went for my interview, recognizing that I was kind of burned out and I needed a change in my life and career. And it was hard to keep seeing patients who you knew were going to die. And I was had when I when the patients look like your parents, you kind of accept it. When they look like you, you start to work out more in the gym, thinking you can be healthier and you'll avoid the inevitable. But they look like your kids, sometimes you just can't handle it and you've got to make a change in career. And for me, it was making that change and taking on this corporate position as a chief medical officer. So, but, but recognizing the role that Cardinal was playing in the pandemic, this wasn't just like a beer distributor. This was a vital piece of the machinery of healthcare. You've got to be able to get drug and devices and supplies, and you've got to get them there on time. And it's complicated because literally that pallet that's holding all the material is holding thousands of different things in different amounts. So, recognizing that and then the impact that it might have, can we fulfill that need, gave me a very different appreciation of where I work and with who I work and the role that they play. So I can go on about the pandemic kind of forever in terms of impact, but there was the personal impact, which wasn't necessarily all that bad in terms of my quality of life. Um, And fortunately, of course, none of my family was personally affected, which would have changed everything. But then there was the corporate impact, which was huge in understanding the role that Cardinal and other distributors play in the very fragmented healthcare system that we have. So on your radio shows, did you tailor most of your shows during the pandemic that we're in now towards COVID or did you kind of stay away from it or you just couldn't get away from it? Couldn't get away from it. You know, it's funny that um, I didn't know much about radio until the radio show started. So the concept of the radio show originally when I was still in practice was our practice had gotten very large. And we saw our competition in the practice as Emory University. I mean, we were huge. We were 50 doctors. We're seeing 16,000 new patients a year. We weren't like other private practices. And seeing Emory as our competition, one of the observations that I made is that patients who were going to Emory, Emory University, for those who don't know Atlanta, it's, it's the big fish and you know, the big academic center and academic healthcare center in Atlanta. But patients who were going to Emory were going to E-M-O-R-Y. Patients who were coming to my practice were coming to Dr. Feinberg, Dr. Lepp, Dr. Scott. And how did we make Georgia Cancer a go-to name in cancer care the way Emory was a go-to name in healthcare? And that requires branding and marketing. And so that's how we start. I started getting more involved in branding and marketing. And that led to our our PR marketing firm suggesting, you know, what about a, a, a talk show about healthcare? And I said, well, it's cancer care. And the, the head of the firm was saying, you know, I've been working with you for 10 years and you've made me believe that cancer care is not about cancer alone. It's about lifestyle. It's about smoking and drinking and exercise and all these other things that you do. And that's pretty broad. And you could invite all the doctors who refer different kinds of patients and we could do this healthcare show. And we pitched it to the radio station. And the radio station said, very interesting, but we're not interested. (laughs) And three years later, I'm now six months into my new job at at Cardinal. And the old PR marketing firm contacts me and says, we just got a call from WSB Radio in Atlanta. They'd like to talk some more about that healthcare show. 
So the one change was it wouldn't be sponsored by my old practice. It would have broad sponsorship and it would be not related just to cancer medicine. Well, I'm wearing this new hat as a chief medical officer. I no longer just do cancer. I'm game. If Cardinal will let me do it, I'm on board to be the host of the show. So Cardinal gave me the nod. I went ahead and said yes. And I learned that the model of the show was going to be sponsorship. So it might be a hospital like Emory, which is one of our current sponsors, and they would they would help to control the content of eight shows a year. And then there might be a, a medical practice that would be a, a, a secondary sponsor, and they would have four shows a year in which they would help to control the content. So now I have sponsor-driven content, and COVID hits, and all that anybody wants to talk about is COVID. But I've got all these sponsors who I'm trying to satisfy and, you know, you start the show, and you start talking about knee replacement and you get a caller and the very first caller is about COVID. And then you have another caller and it's COVID. And I'm looking at this, you know, in the case if we're zooming, we started out even in the beginning of COVID before it became obviously clear that we couldn't do it live. But you'd be in the studio face to face like we are now, except live. And then we did this virtually. But still, you're looking and saying, like, you know, there's nothing I can do. Uh, you know, everyone's talking about COVID. So let's you know, talk about how you're managing through COVID, you know, and which was interesting, of course, because if you're in cardiovascular, the messaging was, you know, if you're having chest pain, the risk of you having a serious event that's going to compromise your life is much greater than your risk of getting COVID and dying from COVID. Like, so you do have to start to filter that information because there's all kinds of the behavioral psychology um, that goes into how we make decisions and your choice architecture is gonna be influenced by everything you're seeing. So if you see nothing but COVID all day long, COVID is the single thing that's your greatest threat. Even though you could be having a stroke and it could take you out in a moment or a heart attack, people weren't going to the hospital. So there was actually a lot of interesting and good messaging we could do that was kind of, it's not like the hospital's off limits. Don't go there to get a COVID test. But if you're having chest pain, you need to go. If you're having symptoms of a stroke, you need to go. And we started to help do a lot of that parsing of information, which I think became really valuable and kind of provided a service to the community. So your, your background is in is oncology. So what parallels do you see between your time in a clinical practice and your role as a life science leader? So even though my specialty is, well, a, well, a couple of things. So one, what drove me, I think, towards cancer, and I can even ask you because you went towards emergency medicine, but I... Cancer was everything. Cancer wasn't, when I started to first think about, you know, which is neat, you know, as, as a DO, because you do a rotating internship and you get all this exposure. And so, and, and I'm thinking, you know, I could be a surgeon, I could be this, but, but it was interesting how so many fields of medicine were becoming specialized to a degree that was related to procedure. And well, as fascinating as I found pulmonary medicine, how much time was being spent passing the endoscope. GI medicine, how much time was being passed, was being spent passing the endoscope. Cardiology, how much time was doing, you know, interventional cardiology. And I was starting to say, am I gonna be comfortable in a practice where so much of my time is related to a particular procedure? I, do I want more diversity in that intellectual experience of what I'm gonna be doing? So I started to gravitate towards maybe it's infectious disease, Maybe it's neurology, maybe it's endocrine, maybe it's cancer. And it's interesting the exposures you get. And 
Um, so the exposure I was seeing in neurology at the time, I mean, we're going back to 1985, 87 period, uh, or even earlier, I guess, 82 to 85. Um, in neurology, it was like really brilliant in the diagno in diagnosis. And when you finally lock in the diagnosis, you don't have any treatment. Um, in endocrine, it was becoming all, even then, it was still becoming diabetology. And it was frustrating in a way in some fields of medicine that I felt like the problem isn't the disease, it's the human condition. It's, you know, and how do you deal with patients who don't want to help themselves? There's this irrationality. We do all these things that are not in our best interest. We eat too much, we smoke, we don't exercise. It's kind of, it was getting frustrating. Like, am I going to be able to do that? And just, you know, or am I going to become this kind of, going to lose any, any compassion that I have and just like buck up and do what you need to do. And, you know, which is not what you want from a doctor. Although maybe you need it sometimes. And then I find oncology and one, all of the internal medicine I've ever done is being used. And so that's attractive. And then it seems like it's on the cusp of not just having all these people who are going to be dying from their disease, but who are going to be able to be treated and maybe even cure. And although it was all early back in the mid eighties to be talking about curing cancer, there was that feeling that we were having these breakthroughs in our understanding. And so as I started to think about my, my practice role, I already thought it was very broad. I always thought it was very broad in the internal medicine aspects because cancer affects every organ in the body. And then as I started to realize that there were things I wanted to do in Atlanta based on what I saw at MD Anderson that weren't being done then. Emory was still a very small program when I got to Atlanta. They were graduating two fellows a year. They weren't an NCCN or NCI designated cancer center. And I wanted to be doing transplant. I wanted to be doing things that I suddenly realized that I didn't know I was an entrepreneur, but I apparently had these entrepreneurial, you know, thought processes. And, and so as I was evolving and growing, there was a point in time as the practice got big enough that I was thinking about, there's so much more we could, I could be doing in terms of benefit at, from a public health perspective than from individual patient care. If I could get all 46 of our doctors to change a certain behavior and do something differently, it could be affecting not just the patients that I see, but all the patients in the company, which is a tremendous number of patients. So it was interesting, this kind of shift from first recognizing, you know, I, the internal medicine aspects that were broad and part of oncology and wanting to be, you know, go deep into that individual patient care to then starting to recognize the public health aspects of a large practice and what we could do. So by the time I, I was hitting this burnout, that focus on the public health was a question of how do I do that public health? And it started to drive me more into things like clinical pathways. How do you impact decision-making? How do you bring more medical evidence into practice? And how do you prove that it can make a difference which becomes the observational research side? So it was, it, 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 it kind of might look like I did this abrupt change, but I kind of see it as a journey and evolution that took place over a decade. As a PCM alum, what advice would you give P current PCUM students about their careers and the practice situation or new healthcare providers are entering? You know, it's tough. And, and um, I had the opportunity to be up um, on the dais with you when I did the commencement uh, address at uh, PCOM Georgia graduation for 10th anniversary graduation year. And, and I thought about that a lot then because, you know, it's funny how 
every time, it's almost like every year there's something going on in healthcare, which if I were coming into healthcare new, as a new graduate, I would think like, oh my God, the sky's falling. And I don't know if there's, it's hard to find a parallel right now to that sky is falling phenomenon for new graduates. But I would tell you that if you look back over the decades, it seems that it's always been there, but there's one thing that is constant, that, that healthcare is necessary and that there is no more noble profession than helping people through illness. One thing I would love to see more of, and I want to talk to you about it, you know, get your perspective, but how from a perspective of training and new graduates entering into our healthcare system, how do we start to move from a system of sick care, which is so focused on just dealing with people when they get ill, to healthcare and helping to transform the way people think about their health and the way they approach their health. And if it maybe is a segue, if I could push that back to you, how do we do that? How do we start to change? Because it's, it's not just how we train them. It's not so much that, I don't know if our students, I think they understand it. It's more of, of a mindset and how do we change practice? And can we do it in the way that our system works? Because I mean, part of the reality, I guess you don't get compensated for keeping people well, or maybe we're gonna see that change post pandemic. So, you know, Bruce, it's funny you said that because I've always maintained that there'll never be real change in our healthcare system until people can make as much money keeping people healthy as they can as taking in care of them when they're sick. And our healthcare system is a sick care model. It's not a healthcare model. Like there's the reimbursement for keeping people healthy is where it needs to go and shift. So one of the reasons that I came back to PCOM to be president here is, you know, how do we create the physician of the future? You know, and what does that look like? And what you're talking about, we share that common goal is how do you build prevention into a medical school curriculum? You, know, you do it with nutrition, you do it with meditation, you do it with exercise physiology. I mean, what are the tools that people need to keep their patients healthy? And the biggest component of chronic disease, and you know this better than anybody as an oncologist, is behavior change. I mean, Chronic disease is behavior change. It's eating, it's exercise, it's wear your seatbelt, you know, alcohol moderation, meditation, whatever you can do. And diet's probably the biggest component of that. So how do you build that into a curriculum? So we've started electives in nutritional medicine, you know, for first and second year students that someday I hope becomes part of the regular curriculum. And we need to build behavior modification and behavior change into the curriculum. So you can have an interaction with a patient that's educational, that you can really give people the tools they need to live a healthy lifestyle. Because at the end of the day, that's the solution, not the sick role model that we're in today and how we compensate today. And it's almost like primary care becomes preventive medicine as opposed to common everyday complaints. And that's the and shift. Is, the whole system needs to make that shift. Right. And what scares me is that, you know, and primary care continues to get decimated. And, oh. and so without it, it doesn't happen. You know, it's funny because I think about telemedicine. And, and I remember a lecture that was given by um, a friend who was an internist who, was, who became chief medical officer at, at Blue Cross Georgia. One of his lectures that he would give would talk about the amount of time that he would have with his patients. 
in, in terms of the way that practice is structured today. And he would say that, you know, even in his chronic patients with chronic disease, and he was seeing them once a quarter, his FaceTime, you know, the exam and the review of systems, the other things that are part and parcel to documenting the visit, but his FaceTime talking was 10 or 15 minutes. He said, how am I going to change somebody's behavior with 10 or 15 minutes, four times a year? And that's a lot because a lot of my patients I'm seeing once a year at an annual visit. And then I think about telemedicine. And the beauty is there's no exam. I think about in my cancer patient, how many times I walk in the room, I have a patient who's in their last six months of their life. I, I, talking to them is going to tell me so much more than examining them. I don't need to listen to heart and lung. Their problem is their liver, which is full of cancer. And, and I could just look at them and see, you know, what was happening and where they were in the stage of disease, but I got to document my note, or, you know, and, and it was getting worse because I was seeing doctors like not even looking at their patient. Thank God, as part of my osteopathic training, the first thing I would do is sit on the side of the bed or next to them and hold their hand and, you know, to feel their skin, to feel their pulse, to just, you know, you know so much in an instant just by touching them. And I see doctors walk in a room standing 10 feet apart and looking at a computer screen and, but, but recognizing that with telemedicine, suddenly they weren't doing the exam. It was just about having the conversation. And, it, and it's, it's a, a low cost, breaks a barrier. If that could be done every month for chronic patients, it could be done every week where you could really help to coach them. How'd you do this week? How was your, you know, let's think about that A1C and what we need to do differently. Just that reinforcement, how much ground we could be gaining. So I'm, I'm curious, do you think some of those things are gonna stick and, and is that part of the curriculum now? Do you talk about telemedicine and how it's different in the way you approach a patient? Yeah, telemedicine is actually part of the curriculum right now. That's fabulous. For third and fourth year students. I think the challenge for telemedicine is what's the reimbursement strategy? Where does it fit? And I think part of the challenge, you know, I like to see it part of continuity of care in a value-based system where let's just use primary care in a value-based model where it's up to the patient and the physician, how they want to be seen, where's the site of service, what's required. Do we even need a physician for a telemedicine visit? How's your hemoglobin A1C? What's your blood pressure? I mean, who really is the best person providing that constant contact? Or is a physician's time better served elsewhere? But how's that going to be compensated? And part of the problem today, we've got a thousand telemedicine companies. Everybody and their grandmother's coming up with a telemedicine company. To an extent, it's actually fragmenting care, which is what I worry about. I like mm -hmm. to see a part of an integrated process and program. And I tease people all the time. Everybody thinks telemedicine's brand new. Telemedicine's not brand new. Telemedicine's been around since Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. You know, how many weekends you were on call 30 years ago, you spent the entire weekend on the phone managing, taking care of patients. What the difference is, you didn't get paid for it back then. Right. People want to be paid for it now. And that's the challenge. What's the best economic model so it fits the right way and we don't cause more disparities in care or more fragmentation? What's a phone conversation? What's a video conversation? You know, how, do, how does that all break down? So I think that'll shake out over the next three to five years. Obviously, in a pandemic, it was a lifesaver for millions of people that were able to, you know, to get remote care. So it's, as we know, you know, healthcare is constantly changing in many ways, shapes, and forms. So, you know, I, I, I had, I think I, I've had somewhat of an atypical journey, or certainly when, you know, I think when, from the standpoint of talking to graduates, most of the physicians they've been working with 
in externship and internship and residency are physicians who, for the most part, probably went into their, whatever that practice was, they landed after graduation is a practice they stayed in. And the expectation was they'd be a clinician in that practice until they retired from that practice. And I took a different path that I never thought I was going to take. In fact, most of the doctors I was working with thought I was the last man to be leaving uh, the practice of medicine, especially given it was a practice that I founded. that was kind of like giving up your baby. I prefer to think that my baby grew up and it was, you know, time for me to let my baby be on its own. But, but you also followed a different path. And I'm, so I'm curious because I think it's important, one, that our graduates know that one, they have an incredible opportunity to have a career in clinical medicine, but also that it's okay to think beyond that. You know, and I think that's different from what medicine had historically been. So I'm, I'm curious if you could share kind of a little bit about your career steps and how you see them in continuity and not kind of just peripatetic wandering that I don't know what I'm gonna do and, and try something else. I mean, like you, I never in a million years when I started my residency in emergency medicine imagined one day I'd be back as the, the president and CEO of my medical school in alma mater. You know, so I was you know, on a direct clear path in emergency medicine. I loved emergency medicine. But after 10 years, like you, I started to burn out. And at the time, there weren't a lot of alternative pathways for ER doctors. And I had an entrepreneurial streak. So I started my own occupational medicine workers' compensation practice. I got board certified in occupational medicine, and I had that practice for about five years, and I actually sold it to a venture capital group, and I worked to work for them for two years, got bored in the role working for them, and then an opportunity came up in the healthcare insurance world, where after Aetna bought U.S. Healthcare, there was a position for a network medical director which is uh, the physician in the local community who's involved with physician contracts and quality of care. So I said, oh, you know, I think this will be interesting. Let me do this for a couple of years. Well, you know, 15 years later, I was in the insurance world, first in the commercial world, and then in the Medicaid world as a medical director, and then a vice president of health plans, running five health plans in three different states. And it always felt like it was a continuum path, it never felt disparate, random. It was just kind of a progression of intellectual curiosity. And like you, you know, there's one-on-one -on -one patient care, but when you have a health plan and you're affecting millions of lives based on policies and thousands of physicians, it's a larger public health impact. So that was kind of the evolution. And then I got an email one day from a close friend who said, hey, we're you know, trying to find leading a search for the new president and CEO of PCOM. And at the time I said, wow, you know, what a great way to kind of finish out a career to go back to my alma mater, bring what I know to help educate the physician of the future. And that's how I ended up here. And it's just having an intellectual curiosity of, you know, learning new things. And there are amazing opportunities for physicians who maybe just want to stop doing their standard clinical medicine practicing clinician. And my hat goes off to those people that have done it for 20, 30, 40 years. It's amazing. They retire. Those are great lives. Uh, but there's equally rewarding opportunities outside of clinical medicine. 
whether it's in, in pharmaceuticals, the insurance world, ACOs, administration, there are lots of different pathways, especially in today's world in the venture capital world of the, you know, of physicians advising venture capital firms who are investing in cutting edge technology for both services for physicians and in biotech and medical devices. So being a physician is a great career. It allows you multiple pathways, much like similar to a law degree. Not everybody who gets a law degree is a practicing attorney. They take that degree and go into various industries for various careers. And I think osteopathic physicians are well positioned to do that. I love the story and, and, and the journey. And I think what's interesting for both of us is that when I was coming out of my training, I was, um, I was very opinionated, <laughs> maybe less so now with age, but uh, I was also very judgmental. And like, you know, you know, the insurance industry, bad, you know, bi biopharmaceutical, bad, you know, they're greedy, they're this, they're that. Um, and it's interesting, and it's not just age and maturity, but part of, you know, the journey, and, and that's why I'm curious about how you see it, but, you know, you're going to see it, I'm sure, in a similar way, is that each of the stakeholders sees a certain nobility in what they do. And maybe the insurance industry gets slammed the most, but in talking to insurance executives, as I have over the last decade, it's interesting. They see themselves often as the only adult in the room, the only one willing to say no, that everybody wants everything. You know, pharmaceutical companies want every drug approved. They want to be able to you know, charge any amount of money for it. It's innovation. How could you stand in the way of innovation? And doctors want to do whatever they want to do, when they want to do it. Even sometimes it's not evidence-based. And patients want... They want the newest and the best and they want it now and they want the most they can get of it, even when it's not in their best interest. And it's really only the insurance industry. It's, it's the only break. We've got all these people with their foot on an accelerator and the insurance industry is kind of the only aspect of breaking the process to try to control. It. And as we know, the cost of healthcare just keep escalating at ridiculous rates. But, but it is interesting that, you know, you put, I, I was putting all these black marks on all these different stakeholders, like somehow it's just the patient and the provider. That's where all the honesty is and everything else is, you know, is crap. And, and, it's, and it's not the case. And I think that as physicians ponder where they might be and as they look at the system, you know, they should have wide eyes. They should look at it and try to be less judgmental, despite everything they're hearing from all their peers, but recognize the system may be not a great system because it's so fragmented, but it doesn't mean everybody working in it that's not their peer is bad. No, I agree with you 100%. I mean, it, it is an ecosystem with checks and balances, but I think you've got people whose hearts and minds are in the right places trying to do the right thing. The majority of that time across the spectrum, insurers, providers, hospital administrators, across the whole system. So I agree with you in that capacity. So I know you've got one last question for, for me here. That's probably the most <laughs> important question of the entire podcast. I end up in Philly with some frequency. I still have a sister who's there. She's not well. So I try to get up every month or two and for a visit. And um, so when I go back to my pecan days, um, my haunt for my favorite Philly cheesesteak was Dallas Andrews. Now, obviously it was also relatively close to campus as opposed to going into South Philly. But um, a month ago when I was up, I went back for the first time in 35, 40 years. And 
freezing cold day, sitting outside with this huge grin on my face. And, and it just made me think about, all right, I, I got to believe it. Maybe not with the same frequency that you once did, but you got to enjoy a good cheesesteak. What's your pick? My favorite cheesesteak actually is probably not well known to everybody, but it's called Steve Prince of Steaks. They had two locations in the Northeast, and now they have one down at Penn. I think it's around 36th in market. And that's actually my favorite cheesesteak. Most people, you know, will always go to Gino's or Pat's. Um, but this is my favorite cheesesteak. Del Sandro's isn't bad. It's close by. <laughs> you know, but I would not put bad. it, you know, I wouldn't put it in my top five. So the next time <laughs> you're in town, we'll go to Steve's Prince of Steaks. <laughs> All right. That's gonna be All a right? deal. That's our Love that's it. our deal. All right. Okay. Yeah. Well, this has been great, Bruce. So I want to thank you for joining me today on PCUM Perspectives. I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Dr. Feinberg's current role provides a great overview of today's healthcare system, while his background as an oncologist gives him insight into patient needs. As healthcare continues to evolve, leaders like Dr. Feinberg will be working to streamline the healthcare delivery process. We are very proud that he is an alumni of PCOM. To listen to past episodes of this podcast and become a subscriber, visit our SoundCloud page or find us on iTunes by searching Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. I'm Jay Feldstein, and this has been PCOM Perspectives.